is One Red Shoe. I'm Troy Foster and this is my show. For this episode, I've been on the road visiting comic book artist Glenn Lumsden in Tasmania. Glenn's an illustrator and drew the Phantom back in the heyday of comic books. We talked about what the industry was like back then, what it's like now and why. We also talked about his detour into commercial art, his return to his passion and how he makes it work for him. But first, we talked about home delivery podcasting. I was going to welcome you to the podcast, okay. but it might be a little bit difficult because we're at your place. So we're I, sh- I should be welcoming you. <laughs> so we're effectively the podcast that comes to you. Fantastic. That's great. <laughs> it's a great service it's that we new, provide. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's like dominoes. <laughs> yeah. Home delivery podcasting. Oh, wonderful. So to start off, I just want to ask you about like how and when did you get into drawing? So how does drawing start for you? Right. I, I've always drawn from as long as I can remember. Um, three years of age or something, I don't know. But uh-huh. I do remember that I would just draw all in the margins of every available cookbook and magazine and newspaper and, and whatever we had in the house. And then I think I discovered comic books when I was about four or five, would have been like Mickey Mouse or something. And um, that just... Just you know, I was just captured by the, it. Was a, I, I don't even know what it was about comics that uh, has just affected me so much. But I can say now because uh, I have tried not to do comics, and I succeeded for like maybe ten years, um, and then I I thought, oh, maybe I should just you know do a little comic cover or whatever, and that was it. I was just back in hook, line, and sinker, <laughs> and now I'm just thinking. Um, it's like coming out of the closet. It's sort of like just going, who am I fooling? Yeah, right. It's like, no. So what, uh, what was the other sort of drawing that you were doing? Uh, oh, commercial uh, stuff. Because I started off when I le- left school and I'd basically been convinced by everyone that you, know, you can't make a living out of drawing. So I, I did other jobs. But I used to draw in the evenings all the time. And uh, I just got to that stage where I just thought, I kept on leaving the other jobs, but the one constant was the the drawing in the evening. So it was just like, well, why the hell don't I try drawing during the day and just see how it goes? And started off doing comics. And um, then after uh, maybe a decade or so of doing that, it's a lot of hard work. And I started to get offers to do other stuff like advertising. It was usually all superhero-oriented advertising gear because... People would go, hey, you're the guy that does the superheroes. So therefore, you know, we'd, we do soup. And we were thinking of, you know, Captain Soup as being our uh, mascot. And um, then after a while, they realised that you could do more than Captain Soup. And so in the end, I'm just doing all sorts of advertising gear for, you know, foods, magazines. So was it, was that a deliberate choice to deviate into that? Or was that something you sort of just merged into gradually? Well, it was, yeah, I segued into it basically because of money. Um Comics are a lot of hard work and for, for little return, especially these days. And um, it's like, I remember the first advertising job I did where it was basically, they said, this one drawing, we will pay you the same amount of money for this entire comic. And I was going, right, one drawing versus like 200 drawings and getting the same amount of money. So so yeah. like the at, at that time the budgets for advertising that were significantly more than the budgets for comic books that's being allocated oh, oh, to yeah, them. Oh yeah, yeah, I mean like and also it's just the the idea of 
doing one drawing once and then you get paid rather than, you know, you, you sort of like you draw, say, Batman in the Batcave, then every time he appears in that Batcave, he's, the Batcave's got to look the same. It's got to have the same stuff in it and the same, you know, you've got to... And so you just get to the stage of um, every time you do a, like a detailed interior or whatever, which has to be repeated, or a costume that's really complicated, you've got to draw that another 50 times. Whereas a, with a billboard or something or a, a packet of you know, a label or whatever... You just draw it once, and it, it can be as detailed as you like. You never have to draw that bloody thing again. It's it, it makes a nice change. That's interesting. That's a that's a challenge I would never have anticipated for drawing a comic book. But it's once you explain it, it seems oh, really obvious. Oh yeah, it's that, like that's why that repetition. Yeah, yeah, it's like laborious. It's like, um, we actually because I used to do comics with a, a group of guys who would help me do backgrounds and stuff, and we actually it was like movies. We had someone who was in charge of continuity, and it would be, can you go through and make sure that the Phantom has his phantom rings on, and they've got to be on the right, the right hands because he's got two different rings. Um, you know, can you make sure his, uh, you know, like the the skull on his belt is always roughly the same size because you don't want, you know, one page he's got a massive skull on his belt, the next one it's like the size of a little thimble or whatever. Um, all those continuity things you don't notice at the time because it's taking you so long to draw each panel. Right. But when you come along to read it and you're just flicking through, you know, you're devouring a page every ten seconds. You just see, all you can see is his belt buckle going, hey, big, small, big, small, not there at all, what the hell, you know. Um, have, you, have you ever had feedback from anyone that's, that's oh, picked stuff up? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yep, absolutely. The, you, um, uh, the the Phantom Ring would have to be the biggest offender of all. And um, every time I show uh, Carly, my wife, a Phantom drawing, that's the first thing she checks. And she always goes, where's his rings? And I go, oh, thank you very much, darling. And um, I pop those in. But yeah, you just get an avalanche of complaints. Yeah, it, it would seem like the demographic that would A, notice and B, feel compelled to let Ab- you know that they'd noticed. Absolutely, yep. <laughs> I remember in um, Marvel Comics in the 1960s, the editor Stan Lee had this great idea. He just invented this thing called a no prize, which was literally no prize. But they sent you an envelope out with a stamp on it which said contains one Marvel no prize and there's nothing in the envelope. But they become so they become so sought after that people would sort of like be going. Oh, I noticed on panel six, Doctor Strange's cape slightly shorter. They're going, no, 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 no. That's no, no, that doesn't count. It's got to be like a fair income continuity mistake. And um, so he turned something that used to be like a, a negative that people would say, you know, your comic sucks because you left Daredevil's gloves off, to people would be going, I think I spotted uh, you left Daredevil's, Daredevil's gloves off. Damn right, we did. You win a no prize. Yes, oh, I love Marvel Comics. I love Daredevil. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, and it turn, turns that negative into a positive. Yeah, that's really clever. So, how how did you get into writing the Phantom? Uh, sorry, drawing for the Phantom. I started doing comics in America and working for a pretty small, uh, low grade company, and um, then after I did some work for them, uh, they actually got bigger and bigger and so the the jobs got bigger and bigger but then after a while you can jump to another company that's on the same level or maybe slightly higher and um, you just basically work your way up the rung until you get to the big two which are marvel and dc and then when you get a foothold in there um you've basically got to start at the bottom again and go up with their minor characters going up high and we were just uh luckily lucky enough my business partner at the time and me we were there and, and um 
they'd just been Marvel had just been doing some uh, talks with King Features, who own Phantom, Mandrake, uh, Flash Gordon. I uh, can't remember who else. And King Features were going to let Marvel do some comics of their characters. And the editor at the time said, hey, isn't the Phantom really big in Australia? And we went, yeah. They said, well, would you like to do the Phantom for Marvel? And we went, hell yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so that was the first time I did the Phantom. That was in the 90s. And then I've started again doing the Phantom, except now instead of doing it for the Americans, I'm doing the Phantom for the Australian publishers who are called Fru, Fru Publications. Okay. That's your classic Phantom comic that every Australian kid has seen forever. You know, you go into the, used to go into the dentists or whatever, the barbers, and there'd be one of those sort of toilet paper kind of <laughs> Phantom comics. Um, they're, they're still going. They've been going since the, uh, the 40s, I think. No, um, uninterrupted. Yeah, uninterrupted. They're, they're sort of in the thousands now. Like, That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you, um, most comic books... You know, sort of a high-numbered comic book would be, you know, issue 500 or something. People would be going, whoa. And um, no, the Phantom's well and truly in the thousands. And um, what's good now is that there's a new uh, publisher who's taken over through. And um, they're uh, including a lot more Australian stuff in it rather than just reprinting the old American strips. Okay. Um, they're getting Australian creators in to do stuff. So I'm doing... Just I'm just one of the people who's doing them, um, but doing some covers and I'm doing some stories and things like that. It's, it's really good fun. But um, the difference about what I'm doing now is I'm not doing it for a living because, again, the money is just not there. N- not, I mean, it's, I, I would also slowly as well, is that um, they could be paying me like a squillion dollars a page. I still wouldn't be able to make a fist out of it okay. financially. Um, but that's why I have like a separate business. The, the Haddo's Hot Dogs, and right. that finances my comic habit, so to speak. <laughs> okay, so the drawing's more of a habit these days. Yeah, but it's great because I've, I've rediscovered my love of drawing, which I totally lost doing it commercially. It's amazing how it just killed my love of drawing. I remember when I stopped, when I wanted to slow down on doing the commercial work and try to get back into doing stuff that I loved, I couldn't... I couldn't think of what I wanted to draw. You know, I'd, I'd give myself a day off to just do whatever I wanted. And I'd sit there going, I need a brief. I need I need a deadline. I need uh, what dimensions? What uh, What's the subject matter? What's, you know, I just lost that ability to connect with my inner self and what I loved. It was just covered in fucking barnacles and layers of bloody, you know. And it's been a really great joy drilling down through all that crap and getting back to finding what's inside me creatively and it's been a real rebirth i I physically feel decades younger it's it's really it's quite a fantastic experience and um it's more significant than just drawing comics again it's it's i'm drawing comics again but i've got a, a newfound understanding of uh of where it all fits in and why it's important to me and what what the true value of it is. I think, you know, my first attempts back in the 80s and 90s, it was very much about getting a popular character that everyone knows and maybe going to conventions and having lots of people want my signature and all that sort of <laughs> stuff, which I just do not give a toss about whatsoever now. It does, you know, it's the antithesis of what I want. Um, like, I'll never go to another convention again. Um, uh-huh. I have no interest in 
I mean, I, 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 I love people. I really like meeting people, but I've got no interest in going to a convention and having lots of people line up and all that sort of stuff. I okay. just, I would just prefer having, sitting around having a coffee with a phantom fan. Yeah, right. And just chatting about just like two people rather than this, you know, you're up on a little stage or whatever and, you know, someone's giving you, okay, you got 20 seconds to with this guy to sign and you know, it's like that's not a relationship. Um, okay. So, yeah, I just think this time round I'm getting a second chance to have another go at it and do it properly this time and enjoy it and not kill not kill the experience with a whole lot of stress and fear and and um, envy, you know, all those bad emotions right. that motivate, that can really motivate you, I think, when you're young and ambitious. Um, and I think you get older. Hopefully if you, and I, and I hope I have learnt from past experience and attained some level of wisdom and insight, um, I feel the way I'm going about it now is is the right way to do it and a, and a a longer lasting way of doing it you know right. like you know it's more sustainable yeah there's not going to be any burnout because um i'm not on fire in the first place <laughs> <laughs> so I, suppose, I don't know if that metaphor works but that's interesting yeah um so would you say that there's a techno so with the downturn in the um profitability of doing it as a vocation yeah would you say that's what, what would you say is the cause of that well um in the uh in the 90s, there was sort of like a, a ridiculous comic boom, which was really a, a, a comic bubble, where um, all these people were collecting comics not for the correct reasons. They, were, they wanted them as investments. You know, everyone thought they could make a million bucks out of, you know, having the, you know, the number one new Spider-Man comic or whatever. And Marvel was selling millions of, you know, Spider-Man issue one, um, like this new revamped one. Um Every collector had 10 copies. The value of the resale value is nothing. <laughs> right. But yep. people couldn't see that for a few years. And then the bubble burst and the, just the bottom fell out of the whole market. So um, when comics were selling millions, uh, uh, pl- uh, creators were getting paid squillions. You know, like um, I remember Todd McFarlane, who was the Spider Man artist in the 90s, the hot, hot Spider Man artist. He was an overnight millionaire just through doing a comic book. Yeah, right. Um, just the royalty checks and, uh, you know. Um, it was it was really serious money, but it couldn't be sustained. And so now, yeah, the, yeah, the, the bottom fell out of it. They um, A lot of companies vanished uh, and other forms of entertainment have, you know, taken over. And so comics are now, um, they're, they're much sort of more uh, boutique, you know, uh, industry. And, you know, they, they, I think there's a more realistic idea of how many people are actually interested. But the thing is, the people who are interested have the bug big time. Is that, would that also, as far as the vocation goes, because you said before that you're just primarily focusing on illustrating. Yeah. Would part of that, so to sustain themselves, I'm imagining then that a lot of the guys that are doing the drawings are going to the cons and that supplements the income to, oh, so yeah. that they can maintain oh, that. So. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, it's a bit like, it strikes me maybe it's the same as with the music industry where people are finding that everyone's pirating their music and they're getting bugger all from you know streaming and iTunes and stuff. So suddenly everyone's touring again. 
Yeah. You know, in their seventies, because it's the only way they can actually directly get their hands on the money. And, and yeah, and charging you six hundred bucks to shake their hand and get the photo and everything. It, exactly. It's really interesting. It's it's like they've got to just you know reshape how this this bloody industry works because um yeah the rivers of gold that were once there in the 70s and 80s for music artists just aren't there anymore and uh yeah it's it's the same with 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 comic books um and yeah the, the sort of the days where you know comic books artists would just appear for free and sign away as many issues as you like like a sort of dead and gone and now it's like you know 200 bucks and you're yeah, because of five pieces or some bullshit line. Because I've been aware of that for not that cultural phenomenon from the point of view of the cons, um, and I've always considered it from the point of view of the fan. Yeah. It's like so you the fans wanting to have that interaction, they want to have that autograph, and it does still feel like even though it's a little bit artificial, but there's a, a long term value in retaining those autographs because you know maybe one day it, this will actually be worth something. Yeah, uh, but I hadn't. I hadn't actually considered this the situation from the other person's side where it's like if other revenue streams are drying up, then yeah. they've got to continue to do that to sustain themselves. Another big avenue is commissions, private commissions. Um, a lot of artists now, you know, like really big name illustrators and stuff, if you, you know, on social media, you say, hey, can you do me a picture of Judge Dredd, you know, fighting the penguin or you know, something that would never happen and they'll say yeah it'll cost you, you know, a thousand bucks or whatever it is and um they make decent money that way as well um, right. to supplement the income uh so yeah people are finding lots of different ways um so actually that's another parallel with the music industry that i only heard about recently is that they do those sorts of things uh, some bands are starting to do those as well they do like a private um gig by request yeah yeah and no one ever hears about it because by its very nature, it's a it's private, private gig. Yeah. But yes, like someone with a lot of cash will pay, you know, yeah, however I, much money for to have their favourite band or musician come and appear at their party and play. I remember hearing uh, Deborah Conway um, did this thing for a while where she said, "I will play in your living room." Wow. Yeah. So you you know you so yep come over for one and you get some mates around and she would set up in your living room and do a set and. And it's it's a kind of it's like really getting back to basics, isn't it? Because yeah. because like these industries become monsters, and again, comics and music as well, where you have between the the artist and the the people buying the music or the the comic, there is this friggin' huge monster that's just devouring all the dough. And I've learnt that the closer you are to where the money starts, the richer you will be. And the further away you are from it, the poorer you will be. <laughs> right. So if you can, you know, get some job at the top of the you know, music chain, it's the same with um, like marketing and advertising companies and stuff like that. You know, ultimately they're just there to put me, the artist, in in touch with, say, Coca Cola, who want a drawing of a can of Coke. But bug it if they don't take the lion's share of all the dough, and you get drip fed some tiny amount six months later. Right, and you're the one who's actually doing the bloody drawing. So, yeah, I, th- I think you just go. We've got to rethink this model. It's not working for me. How can I go straight to the source? I think another important thing too is you've got to be. You've got to keep in mind what is important to you. Like, are you in this to make a become a a mega company that makes squillions of dollars, or are you in this to fulfil your creative desire? And to make just enough money to 
make you happy. And if you're happy with setting your your target lower than the you know the world beating kind of you know, uh, uh, megalomaniac, um, then you don't need that many gigs or you don't need to sell that many items. You know, but the thing is with these big companies, they'll they'll say, "Oh no, no, no. if you're not selling a hundred thousand, then it's just it's not not worth it, not viable for them." Yeah, so that's yeah. why we're not using. It. And you just think that's crap. I, I, I'm pretty sure I could sell five hundred comics, and I mean, if I could draw them fast enough, but if I could just sell five hundred comics to my Facebook mates, I could probably cover them. Up. And you just print on demand as well. You you just you don't print thousands of issues and then try to sell them. You get right. orders in for. It's like with the the Haddo's hot dogs thing. We do a calendar every year, and I only print as many as orders that come in, and and you just figure out well, I'm going to sell them for this because that covers the postage and the printing. Plus, I think I get five bucks on top of that. And so, if you know they order ten, you get ten printed, or if they order a hundred, you order a hundred. Right. But you, the idea is to not be out of uh, a pocket. I'm not making a fortune. But I get to do the calendar, which is, that's the main game, is I want this calendar to exist for fun, for my own creative pleasure. And I don't want to lose money doing it. And I wouldn't mind making a little bit of money, but I don't want to make a whole lot of money. I don't need to. Um, So I, I sort of, that's my target, and I hit that target. But I think if you're just approaching it from the, the purely dollars point of view, you'd be going, the calendar's a waste of friggin' time. Don't do it. Um, we'll do something. We'll do, you know, there's more money doing something else, which you're not really interested in. Right. So, um, yeah, I just think uh, money is not the only metric. It, it, it's not. Um, it's not just. It's not something to be totally disregarded either. Um, I do like having enough money to <laughs> pay the bills. But I mean, really, you just need enough money for shelter, food. You know, pay the bills and then have a little bit over for emergencies, and that's kind of it. And then the rest of the time, do what you love. So how how has it's just occurred to me? How has like the technology like with MP3 that massively changed the situation for music yeah. because the distribu- distribution of music became like instantaneous across internet eventually. Yeah, it, and it just occurred to me as like with a PDF and online web comics and all of that sort of thing, yeah. it's actually really easy to presumably pirate and distribute. Oh, yeah. Is that, so has that had a significant impact on the comic book industry? Huge. Yep, absolutely. And that's why, like, I'm going to self-publish, my plan is to self-publish a, a book, like, in the next two years, and I'm not doing it digitally, no bloody way. Right. It's going to be hard copy, and you're going to have to get it from me. If you want to rip it off, you're going to have to scan it page by page. Absolutely, which someone can do, but I'm not going to make it easier for them. No. You know? Um, and it's uh, it, it's it's funny too because like when you um, – if you're the, 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 the one who likes to grab the free stuff, which we all do, um, you get quite resentful when the artist takes some steps to stop that from happening. You're like, what a bastard. What a prick. But then when, when the shoe's on the other foot, you go the other way, it's just like, man, I'm fucking, I'm starving here and um, you're just stealing my stuff. I'm yeah, doing yeah. this. I can't do any more stuff that you like because I can't afford to because every time I do it, you take it f- for free. So um, I'm just going to make it as difficult as possible to do that. And also what I would like to do, because I imagine I'm going to be printing very small numbers, um, 
everyone who buys an issue, I'm, I'm going to either draw something in the back of it or write something in the back of it, just thanking them personally. So, nice. You know, thanks, John. This is you know one of 100 comics. And yeah, thanks for buying it. And um, hopefully by personalising it, it'll make it harder to... Well, first of all, I mean, it's, it's a nice thing to do. But another benefit hopefully will be you won't be able to do copies without it. I guess you'd have to go in and erase the <laughs> the additions that I've done. But I mean, again, it's just it's just one more kind of little watermark to dissuade people from. Also, you know, I think if you're just upfront with people and just say, "I love doing these comics. This is the best I can do. It takes me ages to do." Um, I would really love it if you didn't if you didn't scan it and give it away for free because I I won't be able to afford to do this in the future. So if you want me to keep on doing comics. Please just enjoy this physical comic and don't scan it. And have, have you considered any um, crowdfunding models? Um, yeah, I'm, I don't. No, I don't want to do that. Uh, yeah. I like. Um, yeah, no. I just overload, overload with getting the Kickstarter crowdfunding thingies coming in and stuff. And um, I think uh, I don't know if everyone else is going to feel the same as me. But it's a bit like charity overload as well. You know, when you get, you know, charities are, are worthwhile, or most of them are worthwhile, but when they're just bombarding you with the guilt trip and the begging bowl and I don't know if you ever noticed, you you go to the supermarket and there'll be someone stationed out the friggin' front door <laughs> and you get your different types. You, like in Tasmania, you get your old school charity, which is great. They're just two old ladies. They sit there and they don't say nothing. Right. And they've got a little thing you can put 20 cents in. They go, oh, thanks very much. But they don't come up to you. They don't have this slick kind of, hey there, how you going? I like your shoes. Can I just talk to you for – and you're just going, because oh. um, there's, there's plenty of, like, of the new wave charity collectors who are just like doing the hard sell and they won't let you, won't let you just get into the supermarket. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I wandered off track totally then with that story about no. the charity. <laughs> what the hell were we talking about? Um, talking about the oh, old Kickstarter about, model. Yeah, kicks, that's right, yeah. yeah. Well, it, yeah, it, it's interesting because with the parallels with the music industry, it is how another avenue that what people are using to sustain themselves, but it does also give access to the audience and the fan to help. It's kind of, it becomes a meritocracy in my view where it's like, I'm going to support, like, I like what this person's doing so much that yeah. I want them to keep doing it. And so I'll support that. And, I mean, a few years ago now, there was a big backlash against Amanda Palmer where she did the crowdfunding to make the next album. Yeah. And they're like, oh, and then you're still going to charge people to buy the album and come to the concerts and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, but if you're a fan of Amanda Palmer's music, the worst case scenario is that she can't afford to make the next album. Yeah. So if you can help to contribute to that. Yeah. And it's not like she's going to people's houses with a gun and a balaclava and saying, you must sign up to my yeah. um, Patreon or whatever it is. So, it, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I guess the, um, I mean, hypothetically it sounds good, but I find in reality what you get is a lot of people you know um, or you know just vaguely know on Facebook, they're just sort of Facebook friends, who aren't really that crash hot and they're sort of going here's my stuff support it and you feel you sort of think i really don't want to support this because i don't think it's good enough okay <laughs> but so I'm, i feel guilty by because they've asked me 
and I'm going to feel like a bastard if I don't give her money. And then you just start to think, well, now I've got to give everyone freaking money. And then, and then if I, but I then, won't have any money. And then, and also we end up with all this product that I don't think is any good. <laughs> so it's like. It's so just, it's the reciprocal effect. Yeah, yeah. So you feel yeah. like that if you put yourself out there on the Patreon and then people support that, yeah. then when they when they when it's their turn, yeah. they're gonna feel like, okay, and this now is give a, me my money back. That is a big <laughs> dynamic of social media, which is like a major downside to it. I mean, I love social media, but yeah, it does have some downsides. And the I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine thing is ah uh, and, and it's not just Kickstarter, it's bloody um likes, it's it's you know Everyone putting up their mediocre shit and going, everyone going, fantastic, laugh, and oh, you're brilliant. You know, the word, it's, everyone's just air kissing each other's butt, you know, <laughs> and the, and it's all just because they want the same when it's their turn to post their bloody whatever they do. Um, they want the same affirmation of you're wonderful, you're great. And in a world where everyone is wonderful and great, no one is wonderful and great, you know. It's all just about, you know, stroking everyone's ego and stuff like that, which which in turn creates a more mediocre playing field, if you like. So, like, you know, you years ago you'd have 100 comics and in order to get printed they would be of a certain standard. Now it's like you might have 95% of them are really unprintable. They shouldn't be printed, but they are in print. And everyone's – no one's pointing out these are crap. They're, they're just going – Good on you, Joe. Fantastic. Here's my comic. Oh, your comic's great too, Mitch. And you know, it's um, no, not good. <laughs> Probably to go in a slightly different tangent. Yeah. What's the process of drawing a comic for people that don't know? Um, well, first thing is it's it's basically it's a story, you know, and um, so you've uh, got to come up with the, the, the uh, an interesting story. Um, then you can I mean there's lots of different ways of doing it, but traditionally you would you'd write the story. What I tend to do is I tend to uh, see the story as a kind of a movie in my head, if you like. And so instead of writing a proper script like page one, panel one, blah blah blah, I will uh, just on my computer I'll just open up all lots of blank pages and I'll just start scribbling panel one. You know, like just a really rough stick figure of, and then just a word balloon with, you know, a rough, what what the guy has to say, and then I will, you know, you just fill in the gaps. Then you know, you sort of think, right, it starts here. In the middle, there's got to be this thing happens, and then at the end, it's got to end this way. So you've got um, those areas blocked in. Then you've got all the in betweeny bits, which. Um, you have a lot of flexibility with you. That's where you can introduce what I call your wow factor moments, which might be like you know there has to be a chase scene, but um, I mean like what are they? Ch- you know, is it like speedboats? Is it cars? Is it planes? Whatever. Um, so that's where you can add the I guess the eye candy sort of stuff. Um, and so once I've got it all blocked out as stick figures, um, then I start to I'll start to draw it so I guess you'd call it the penciling stage although I draw it all the computer so there's no pencil involved but that is when you're just starting to properly draw the things so they look like the actual things and um, as I do that I, I'll start to add dialogue which is um, uh, more refined more thought out 
Um, the beautiful thing with doing it on the computer is because you can, it's really easy to undo stuff and shuffle pages around, um, you can constantly change your mind, you know, right. and so you can, you know, just up until the very last day, you can still be finessing little moments and, and um, just tweaking dialogue. So it's a, you sort of go, oh, I don't really need that line of dialogue. Um, uh, yeah, so by the time, you don't have to commit yourself to the very, very last bit. Um, or, or rather, you commit yourself in stages. So the further along in the process, the more you've committed yourself, but there's still wriggle room at the end of the day to change things. So that, that's how I go about. So it's kind of an organic kind of process, if you like. Um, but in, in, like in the old days when you had a team of people, mm-hmm. someone would actually write a script. It would be like a 24-page film-type script with pages, panel scenes, dialogue written in. Then you'd pencil it. You'd send that off to the letterer. The letterer would look at the script and ink all the lettering onto, the, onto your pencil page, send it to the inker, who would then ink the pencils. Then it would go to the colorist. So you really had to commit early. Right. It was a lot harder to change at the last minute, but now you can. Is, is that something that's um, helped inspire your passion, like help reignite your passion, having that flexibility? Oh, I love it. It's fantastic. It's great. Um, uh, one of the things that used to annoy the hell out of me would be you'd have to commit too early to something and then ages away down the process – you'd think, oh, damn, I oh, would have been so much better if I'd done this, but it's too late. Right. So next issue, I will try to apply that lesson there. But the problem is that all your, all your whoopsies are in print, whereas now, hopefully, you, you get them all in time. Does that slow down the process by doing it yourself? Like, obviously, with a production line, there's efficiencies in, like, you hand it on to the ink guy, you start on the next bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's just... If you're working with a team of four people um, it, and you're only doing the pencils, uh, once that job is finished, you are on to the next issue. Right. And so, you know, you try and work, say, ideally six months ahead of, of print time um, so that, you know, if someone gets sick or whatever, it doesn't, the, the wheels don't fall off. Um, but I don't have to worry about that because I'm just working by myself you know, doing my own thing to my own schedule. So I, I literally have, all my deadlines are so loose or um, or generous that they're not even deadlines. So for instance, like I'm doing a Phantom cover at the moment, which isn't due till the end of November, and we are early October. So, right. I mean, I could finish it Monday and I could send it to Fru, who won't be sending it to the printers for two months. Right. And I could, you know, contact them in a month's time and go, I'm going to send you, I've recolored the lion. I've decided it should be purple. Um, so get rid of that old file and I'm sending you through the new one. And they just update their files when it arrives and tickety-boo, we're, we're back. So it's, it's fantastic. So how far out is their production schedule? Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to ask because, like, they do, they do different uh, titles. They'll, they'll do, like... The regular Phantom, which comes out, I think, every two weeks, which is very fast. Um, and they, I don't know how far ahead they work, but um, they would be working pretty frenetically, I'd say. Then they do their annuals. Well, once a year, they do their specials. And they do a thing called the Giant Size Phantom that I do the covers for. That comes out four times a year. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... And they also do like some portfolios and 
various merchandise and things like that. So um, they all have different deadlines. So with, with the giant size Phantom, it comes out four times a year. So I'll usually start drawing it a couple of months before I know it's due, which just means that I can take my time doing it and um, change my mind and, you know. I've done Phantom covers where I have literally, I've spent the first week doing a drawing that I've totally abandoned <laughs> and started again. <laughs> and um, obviously, you know, that's, I mean, it's just, it's more work that I've got to do. But I really like having that luxury of just going, because I, I, at this stage of my career, my, my second chance at doing comics, I just want everything to be perfect. I just want it to be something I'm, I'm I want to be proud of every piece. I don't want to rush a piece. Right. I don't want to sort of like go, oh, it could have been better, but I couldn't be bothered. I just want everything to be the best I could do at that time, knowing full well that in a year's time, hopefully I can look back and say I could do better than that. But to know that that was the best I could do at the time, that's all I want to achieve. And if that means abandoning an idea that's not working and starting with a fresh idea, so be it. Because I've had enough wincing at my published work in my career to last me forever there's just so much stuff i can't look at i don't want to wow. i don't want to think that i even did it's it was just so terrible and um you know and you'd always go oh yeah i was really rushed i don't you know the deadline or they weren't paying enough or there's always some reason right but that doesn't make it any more fulfilling you know and i hate the idea of just drawing all this stuff that i can't look at that because yeah. it pains me <laughs> I like a great line from I was watching an interview with Paul Kelly, the musician, and he said someone was asking him about his early albums, and he said, "If I could get a bulldozer and dig a giant hole and bury every copy of every one of my early albums, I would do it." Wow, he said, "I just can't listen to him." I was like, I was learning my craft. Unfortunately, I was learning in public on stage, and. All that stuff I did that I can't stand, it's its just there to haunt me forever. If I could bury it deep, deep down under, I would. And I feel exactly the same way about, I reckon, the first 20 years of what I've done, 25 years. Because it's just taken me that long to learn how to be what I consider good. Right. And, But the thing is, at the same time, I had to make a living. So I just made a living doing stuff that wasn't good. Yeah. <laughs> and it... It pains me, every part of me, um, which is why now I really want to make a fist of this second go, and I am. I'm really so stoked with the way it's all going, and um, that's excellent. And it's because I've I've uh, unhitched myself from that burden of having to pay the bills with the art, with the comics. Right um, now, it's like I know I'm not getting paid much. I'm getting paid even less per hour because I'm taking so long to do it, and I don't mind. So the satisfaction is a large part of the compensation. Absolutely. And one thing I've asked for and, and been given uh, by Fru is uh, pretty much total freedom. Wow. Because um, like they don't have a great deal of money to, to throw around. And I said, well, if I'm going to do this with you guys, I really want you to have faith in me and know that I've got the experience to do it. I've got the skills now to do a really top flight job for you. I'm not going to be getting top flight money. So what I want in recompense is I want freedom and I don't want deadline pressures. 
Right. And if you can give me that and just trust me, I'll be happy as a pig in poo. And, and <laughs> they've been absolutely true to their word. That's great. Which is fantastic, which is great. That's awesome, man. Well, I reckon that's a good note to end on. Fantastic. So thank you very much for your time, man. It's been My awesome. pleasure. It's been great fun. A big thanks to Glenn and Carly for a great few days in Tassie. I have to say, I was as happy as a pig in poo too. If you want to see what Glenn's up to with Haddo's, check out the Haddo's Hot Dogs page on Facebook. Trust me, these gourmet hot dogs are so good they make any trip to Tasmania worthwhile. As I mentioned on the last episode, we'll be posting less frequently for the next couple of months. But thanks for hanging in there and thanks for listening to One Red Shoot.